awesome, fantastic. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and we are in our fourth of our five-part series entitled Eat This Book. And the whole premise of this entire uh, series, this teaching series, is to get you to start reading your Bibles. Now, let me kind of tell you where we've been, and I'm going to tell you where we're going today and uh, next Sunday. Uh, we've been talking about, two weeks ago, we looked at why should we even believe the Bible? We looked at archaeological evidence. We looked at prophetical evidence. We've actually looked at historical documents and evidence there. Last week was a great week. In fact, if you missed it, I'd encourage you to go to our website. You can podcast it. You can Vimeo it. You can stream it, whatever you want to do. But last week, we were looking at how the Bible all fits together. Uh, last week, we, we said that many of us, we look at the Bible kind of like a person looks at a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle and has no box top to look and see how it all fits together. So last week, we looked at the Old Testament and the New Testament and how all that kind of fits together, even what the, what the word testament means, a covenant or agreement. This week, we're going to be looking at the Gospels. We're going to be looking at the first four books of the New Testament, and they're all biography of one person, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, the word gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. And it's portraying four different people looking at the same life, and that is the life of Jesus. Now, again, I don't know what your like spiritual background is. Mine, you know, I kind of grew up in church. For some of you, you may have deuced out on God years ago. Uh, some of you may be just now coming back to God. Some of you may have grown up in the church. Let me tell you kind of what my aspect and kind of how I view Jesus. Because that question, who is Jesus, really is a question that all of us are going to have to answer sometime in our life. When I was a kid, <clears throat> when I thought of Jesus... Growing up in Sunday school, I thought of, you know, the kids drinking Kool-Aid and sugar cookies and um, seeing Jesus in his life kind of played out on a flannel graph. Anybody remember flannel graphs? All right. It's kind of, you know, that was technology back then, baby. That's all I'm saying. So um, I, I just, I remember singing Jesus Loves Me. And I remember having really vivid pictures of who Jesus was and what he looked like. In fact, today, I'm going to show you some pictures of how I viewed Jesus growing up. <clears throat> Let me show you some of these pics. This is a great pic of Jesus. I mean, all these different pictures of Jesus. How do you perceive Jesus? Here, we have Jesus kind of as a, a white dude with long flowing hair and like a beard. Uh, some portray him as darker. Uh, others uh, portray him as a, like a little boy up at the top. Jesus has a tattoo. Um, that's kind of unique. Um, uh, we have uh, Jesus, depending on like what, where you grew up, you know, with the like flaming heart, kind of whatever denomination you came from. Um, but Jesus kind of in the stained glass, what is he holding? A lamb. All right. When I was a kid, Jesus was always holding lambs. I don't quite understand that. All right. Um, and let's go to another picture. <clears throat> Here, Jesus, uh, he's either holding lambs or he's holding children. That's kind of how I grew up kind of picturing Jesus. I mean, here Jesus has is like has a little butterfly. Oh. And, uh, you know, Jesus is, like I said, holding children or lambs or something like that. Let's show you some more pictures of kind of how I... There's the lamb, right? I'm, again, he, he, you know, he was a... I know. Oh. So, I mean, uh, he, what, he was a carpenter by trade, so he's always holding these lambs, though. So it's, I, I don't quite understand it. And, by the way, I mean... How do you picture Jesus, though? I mean, he's got the long hair, right? He has the beard. 
you know, and he has this milk white skin. And um, is that how he looked? I mean, is that how, I mean, that's how artists portray him. And that's kind of how I remember him. But how do you see Jesus? Let me show you another picture. Here, this is a famous painting. Jesus is doing what? He's knocking at a door, right? And what's around his head? I mean, he's got this halo, maybe? I mean, was Jesus really like that? I mean, I mean, when you saw Jesus, could, did, they, did he have this halo around his head? I mean, was it like obvious? Oh, you're Jesus. And I mean, what is he doing here? Has he like locked his keys out? I mean, is he, I mean, what is that all about, right? And again, for some of you, you grew up in church and you're like, well, let me tell you what that's about. And I, I'm with you. But for so many of us, we look at that and he's holding the little shepherd's crook. Again, the whole shepherd thing. And it's our view of Jesus. Let's see if there's any more pictures up there. Um, I mean, here's Jesus, like with again little children. He's always with children or lambs. Back and here's he's he's with a a little boy with a needs to get a longer toga. And um, I mean, he, I mean, he's there. And it's, this is kind of like a 16th, 17th century Jesus, if you will. Any more pictures we got of Jesus? Um, th- now this is unique. Up at the top right, that is Will Ferrell as Jesus. I kid you not. <clears throat> Throwing that out there. All right. Um, in the bottom, you have Jesus Christ Superstar with the big S, you know. And you have, I mean, who is Jesus? What, is he, what does he look like to you? All of us, we've grown up with a picture in our mind's eye of who Jesus is. And again, not to be disrespectful or anything, because I'm not that. I'm just telling you as a kid. I picture Jesus as kind of this nice man, kind of like Mr. Rogers. Y'all remember Mr. Rogers, don't you? Mr. Rogers would come in and he would start singing. And what would he start doing right off? Kick off his shoes, right? And he's he's going to put on his tennis shoes and lace those up. Got to do double knots. It's safe. All right? I mean, but think, was Jesus a Mr. Rogers? Or, I mean, what type of government would crucify and execute a Mr. Rogers or a Captain Kangaroo? Seriously. I mean, what type of people would, say, kill him and crucify a person who's patting little kids on the heads and going, be nice, right? I mean, I hope if you're going through the whole new through 30 or the new through 40 or the new through 60, whichever one you're going, if you're reading the New Testament, all right, as you're doing, I hope you've been confronted with some of the pictures you've had of Jesus. Because so many times, how we see something and our perceptions of something keep us from experiencing the real thing. In fact, our big idea is exactly that today. Our perspective keeps us from seeing Jesus for who he really is. Our perspective, our perceptions keeps us from seeing Jesus for who he really is. I mean, I think we have a problem with this when it comes to spiritual relationships, but I just think we have problems when it comes to relationships in general about this. I mean, so many of us, we see somebody, we see a friend, maybe a casual acquaintance or something, and we look at them and we're like, oh, that person is blank. We make perceptions, we make judgment calls, and we allow our perceptions and our perspectives to jade and really keep us from seeing who that person really is. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. <clears throat> if you see someone 
who has a uniform on that has camouflage on, your perspective, you're assuming that that person is what? A soldier, exactly right. If you see someone in a black uniform with a badge, with a belt, and gun, and a nightstick, you assume your perception, your perspective is that you see that person, he's what? What was that? A ninja. Dear Lord. He's a police officer, or she's a police officer, all right? Try to keep up, all right? When you are driving, when you are driving in your car, and you look in your rearview mirror, and you see blue flashing lights immediately behind you, your perspective, you perceive you've done what? You've been speeding, exactly right. You've been sinning for Jesus, right? Absolutely. You see, our perspectives and our perceptions... Many times we assume something, we label someone, and we think, oh, well, and, and, and we do this with our friendships, we do this with our family. We see just a tip of something, and our perspective, no, and we put them in a box. And see, the very thing that we do to other people that keeps us from getting closer in our relationships is the very thing that many of us do with our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Because we have perceptions, we have pictures of who he, we think he should be. And the pictures we have of what, he, what we think he should be really keeps us from experiencing who Jesus really is. Now, if you think this is just a, a 2011 problem, it's not. Because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus came to his people... By the way, anybody remember from last week, the Old Testament is, is centers around a group of people? What do we call them? Wow. The Old Testament centered around a group of people, the Jews, the Hebrews, the Israelites. Those are three names, all of the same group. Wow, we're going to have to repeat that last week. All right? Now... Here's the thing. Jesus came to his own people, the Jews, and he came to his people and their perception of God's son, the Messiah, the Christ, the king, those are all the same words. Their perception was that he, when, when God showed up, that he was going to wipe everybody out, that he was going to take all the people who were kind of, who had conquered the Israelites, Rome, and he was going to wipe them off the throne, and he was going to come as this conquering king with sword drawn, and he was going to make everything right. That was their perspective of who Jesus should have been, the Messiah. And because they had that perspective and that perception... They would read the Old Testament scriptures and they would read some of these prophecies and how Jesus would come as this coming king. And they really didn't know what to do with scriptures like Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 portraying Jesus as a suffering servant. So they kind of overemphasized some passages and underemphasized others. And they, their idea of who God should have been the Messiah when he showed up as this conquering king, and they totally missed him. In fact, this is very interesting. The thing that distinguishes Christians and Jews to this day is that most Jews are still looking for the Messiah to show up. They're still looking for their conquering king. What, they, what they've missed because of their perspective is that Jesus, their, their king, has already showed up has already shown up, he's already been on the scene, and they missed him. And they're still looking for somebody who showed up 2,000 years ago. 
Because our perspective and our perceptions can keep us from seeing what God many times really is. Very, very important. So who is Jesus to you? And is your perspective or your perception of him keeping you from seeing who he really is and who he wants to be in your life? Today, if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the table of contents. The table of contents. We give away free Bibles here, so you're welcome to grab one of those. If you have version, you can follow along and click your live events. But we're going to be looking at these four books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Very good. And we're going to be looking at why do we have four books and what do they say and who emphasizes what. Now, before we go any farther, Matthew and John were two of the disciples of Jesus. By the way, how many disciples did Jesus have? Twelve, exactly right. He has twelve disciples. In fact, uh, other, in other places in the Gospel of Luke, it says not only did he have twelve disciples, but he had seventy disciples. So you had all of these people following Jesus, and then seventy people following Jesus, and now the seventy, twelve people followed Jesus, and now the twelve, you had three really close people, and that was Peter, James, and John, his three kind of inner circle of his disciples. All right. Now, Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. They saw it all happen. That's Matthew and John. Now, Mark and Luke were not part of his disciples, and they interviewed people to be able to get their facts straight. So let's look at the entire perspective of why we have four Gospels. I mean, think about that. So many times people say, time out, hey, listen, the Bible's full of contradictions, and here's the reason why. Matthew doesn't quite agree with Mark, and Luke doesn't quite agree with John. Why do we have four different accounts? In fact, we looked at this two weeks ago. We have only one perspective of Julius Caesar, the man of the day, and we only have ten copies of that, right? And here we got four different perspectives of the same person, Jesus and we, would, we wouldn't expect that from somebody who didn't run for office politically, who had never led an army into battle. I mean, Jesus wasn't any of that. So why? Well, let me give you a perspective on this, and it, I'm going to talk about my wife for a little bit. My wife loves painting. Something new that she got, she's, uh, she's actually gotten into in the past year. In fact, she goes to a place here in town called Swirls. By the way, I'm not getting any money kickbacks for mentioning the word swirls in my sermon. All right? <clears throat> but Swirls, I'm going to throw, you some, uh, throw some pictures up here of Kim and some of her paintings. Uh, my wife is on the right, and here she is with one of her friends, Rhonda. And they, um, they have painted, both of them have painted a picture. Now, very interesting, how this class works is you have one picture, in, in, and then you have all of these people who are painting their interpretations of that picture. Follow me on that one? So they're looking at one picture, and then they're painting their own picture. So my wife, Kim, on the right, she looked at one, this picture, and that's what she painted. Rhonda, on the left, she looked at the same picture, and that's what she painted. And, and, and it's all from the same picture, but from their own perspectives. Kim's perspective and Rhonda's perspective. And not only that, let me show you. Here's the entire class. All right? So here we have... 12 different perspectives of the same picture, right? All of them were looking at the same picture, but doing their own interpretations. Let me show you another one. This is a little bit different. Here is Kim, and she has painted a dragonfly with about 12 different people, all right? Now, look at this next picture, and you can see that Kim and Rhonda's dragonfly are very, very different. 
They're looking at the same picture, but they are, they're seeing it through different eyes. All right? So that is the perspective we have, and that's the reason why we have four different accounts. And, and sometimes when you say, well, they don't agree, well, it's, it's from their own perspective. It's like this. How many of y'all have ever sang in a choir? Let me see your hands. All right. Uh, how many of y'all sang soprano? All right, thank you very much. Thank you, ma'am. All right, by the way, no guys should be raising their hands. <clears throat> All right, uh, uh, guys, uh, l- let me see those who are singing in the choir. Let me see your hands. How many of y'all were bass? Who, are, who sang bass? All right, yes, sir. See you very much, sir. And then tenors. Tenors are the high guys, right? All right, I'm a high guy, right? And then you have the bass. And then you have the altos. Let me see altos out here. Let me see you. These are ladies. N- not you, sir. All right, you're like... <laughs> All right, no, no, no men should be. All right, so let me. Like, so you have in a choir, you have two ladies' parts, two men parts. There's a high and a low ladies' part, and there's a high and a low men's part. Now, getting around this time, that one of the famous songs that choirs like to sing around Christmas is the Hallelujah chorus, right? Hallelujah, and everybody stands up, right? But I mean, think about this: after they perform the Hallelujah chorus, if you pulled a bass and a tenor and an alto and a soprano, and you ask, hey, alto, sing that line. And she sang the line, you would go, uh, that's not what I heard. That, 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 that's, what, that's, that's what you sang? And, a bass, let me hear you. Boom, 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 boom. No, that's not what I heard. Or you ask the soprano. I, that that kind of sounds like it. But what, what you have is something, they're singing four-part harmony. And when you put those four parts together, what do you have? All right, you got a course. You get something that's pretty. And that's what we have with the Gospels. We have four different perspectives looking at the same life. Now, here's the cool thing. Of, now, this is very interesting. I forgot to say this in the first service. When you read the four Gospels, it only gives us a 52 days of Jesus' life. You know, the Gospels were never intended to be like a motion picture that shows us everything that he did. It only gives us 52 days of his life. Now, he died when he was 33 years old. They crucified him. He started his ministry when he was 30 years old, which means his ministry spanned for three years. And we only have how many days presented? 52 days presented. Now, how come we don't have a lot more? Well, John 21, 25 says this. Jesus also did many other things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the books that would be written. So that's the reason we don't have any more. There's not enough books in the world can talk about Jesus. But we do have not one, not two, not three, but four different perspectives of the same life. So let's look at the first one. The first gospel is called the gospel according to Matthew, and it was written by... Thank you very much for coming to One Church. Matthew, exactly right. Now, let me tell you, Matthew paints the portrait of Jesus as king. Jesus as king. Let's say that. Jesus as king. You see, Matthew is a Jew, and he's writing to the Jews, and he is building a case. He is presenting Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. That's exactly right. Now, by the way, Jesus Christ, his last name is not Christ. All right? Let me tell you what that word Christ means. Christ is the Greek word for Messiah, and that's the Hebrew word for our word king or anointed one. So it's Jesus the king. So Matthew was a Jew who wrote 
to Jews presenting Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. Now, let's, let's break that down. In Matthew chapter 1, he starts out with a genealogy. A genealogy. Now, why in the world is Matthew... And y- y'all know the genealogies, right? And this person begat that person. And, that, and you're like, oh. Right? But think about this. If he's trying to prove to the Jews that Jesus is their king, what do you want to start with? A genie? I mean, think about it. How many of y'all watched the royal wedding? I, I didn't. You know what I did? I slept. Thank you very much. All right? Now, here's the thing. Some of y'all are really excited that I slept. Man, I'm going to go to sleep now. All right? Here's the thing about that. Prince William, how... Now, he's, he may be a great dude, but one day he is going to be the king, Right? Now, what's going to make him the king because he's so much better than everybody else or because he's done something really special? No. How do you become king? Genealogy. You're born into it. And guess what? Matthew has proven to the Jews that Jesus is the rightful king. So he traces his Jesus' genealogy all the way back to the most popular king of Israel, and his name was King David. And not only that, he kept some, he pushes it back even farther and go, takes it all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. So he starts with a genealogy. And one of the things that Matthew talks a lot about, he calls Jesus the son of David, the son of David. And David was the, the, the most popular king. He uses that phrase seven times. The, the point, the verse that kind of gives us what Matthew is all about is found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 37. And let me read it to you. It says this. This is Jesus, the what? King of the Jews. Now, let me tell you, give you a little bit of perspective. Leave that up there if you would. This was written down on a sign that was nailed above Jesus' cross. So let me explain a little bit about that. This is, there's 28 chapters in the book of Matthew. So this is like right at the end when he's getting crucified. What happened was in Roman times, when somebody did something wrong and was tried and was convicted of it, They would write down on a sign, if you stole something, they wrote down thief. If you killed somebody, they wrote down murderer, right? If you, um, so they wrote down the charge that you were charged with. They would hang it around your neck. And then the person convicted would have to walk through the main street of that city out to the outskirts of the city where that person would be crucified and whatever they were convicted of were hung above that person's head so that everyone would realize, hey, this is what happens when you steal or when you kill. All right? Now, what what did they write above Jesus' head? This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You see, what he was convicted of was that he was the king of the Jews. That's what, I mean, th- what Rome is saying is anyone who claims to be a king in power, what, this is what happens to people like that. They are killed. They're executed. All right? So that is what happened, and that's where we get this verse. Very, very interesting. Let me give you some facts about uh, the book of Matthew, and looking at Matthew, and then we'll move on to Mark. Matthew quotes more from the Old Testament than any other gospel writer. You want to know why? Who is he writing to? Jews. What do the Jews read? The Old Testament. Thank you very much. In fact, he says on eight different occasions, 
excuse me, nine different occasions, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. It's like Matthew is connecting the dots over nine different times, saying Jesus is the one who fulfilled this prophecy. All right? Jesus talks more about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven than any other gospel writer. Why is that? Well, if you're a king, you've got to have a what? A kingdom. Exactly right. Now, also, Matthew makes a point to show Jesus' authority over so many different things. Jesus' authority over nature, over the spiritual realm, over the demons, over the angels, over um, the Israel, over the law, over nature, over uh, disease, over death. He says so many times that he, so that this may be done so that people could be able to see the authority that he has. Why? Because kings have authority. Very, very interesting. Now, let me tell you a little bit about the person, the fellow who wrote the book of Matthew. His name was Matthew. His other name, his Hebrew name was Levi, which means he was from a priestly tribe. And this guy was a tax collector. How many of y'all like tax collectors? No one in here. In fact, I see you, ma'am. The reason why you like a tax collector is because your son or daughter probably collects taxes. All right? That's the thing. Nobody likes tax collectors. And especially in that day, because in order to collect taxes in that day, you were collecting taxes for Rome. And Rome was the conquering nation. And what that means is Matthew, a Jew, sold out his own people. He compromised his beliefs so that he could be able to get some money. Let me tell you what that means about you and I today. Some of you, you've compromised so much and you've ran so far from God and you think God could never, ever use me and you would be exactly wrong. Because God can use anybody. If he can use Matthew, who was a traitor to his own people and sold out his own people, that he can use you. And he used Matthew to write a book about Jesus. That is amazing. Now, let's look at Mark. Cool thing about what we see in Matthew, Matthew portrays Jesus as a king. And most of the times we think a king, somebody who's born with a silver spoon in his mouth, somebody who has a lot of servants, Right? But here's the cool thing about this. Mark betrays Jesus as a servant. Mark betrays Jesus as a servant. Let's all say that. Mark betrays Jesus as a servant. Mark was a Roman citizen writing to Roman citizens, showing them Jesus as a servant. So Mark, his full name is John Mark was a Roman citizen writing to Roman citizens, presenting Jesus as a servant. Now, the first thing you're going to realize in the book of Mark that's different than Matthew is in chapter 1 of Mark, you're not going to have a genealogy. Why is that? Because nobody cares where a servant comes from, right? They don't care where you're born or who your daddy is or mama is. And the cool thing, they don't care about it. They care, are you going to do your job and are you going to do it effectively and quickly? In fact... The most popular word, the most repeated word in the book of Mark is the word immediately. Because, again, a a Roman person wants to know something and they want to know it now. The word immediately is used 41 times in the entire book and 10 times in the first chapter alone. Very, very, very interesting. You know what? Romans don't really care a lot about oratory and words. They want to know what you're going to do. So let me tell you, the book of Mark doesn't really have any of of Jesus' teachings or his sermons. But one of the things he emphasizes is his deeds over his words. So the book of Mark is going very, very quickly. In fact, it moves so quickly. I encourage new Christians, somebody who just began their relationship with Jesus, to read the book of Mark first. 
Because it's very quick. It's very, very quick. It's immediately. In fact, the, the, the point of the book of Mark is found in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And it says this, For even the Son of Man, that's like a, a nickname of Jesus, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? To serve and to give his life, to, but to serve others and to give his life a ransom for many. <clears throat> Romans like brevity, so Mark is the shortest of all the Gospels. Only 16 chapters. Now, who was Mark? Mark wasn't one of the 12 disciples. His full name is John Mark. And let me tell you a little bit about him. Um, he, he collected a lot of his data by interviewing Peter. So he gets a lot of his information from Peter, who was a disciple. When you read the book of Acts, you read some stuff about John Mark. He was born wealthy. His mom was one of the first followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, a lot of people believe that when Jesus, when he had his upper room, you know, the Last Supper, that it actually happened in John Mark's house because John Mark's mom was a follower of Jesus. He was very wealthy because it was in one of the wealthiest sections of Jerusalem. But let me tell you about John Mark. John Mark had a past. John Mark started out good for Jesus, but then halfway in the book of Acts, and we're going to look at this next week, things got tough, and he says, I'm gone. I can't fight this. It got rough, and he left. And then somebody came out and ran after John Mark, and after years, I mean, he comes back to the faith, and he starts doing some amazing things. And let me tell you, that should give you encouragement, because some of you, you have walked away from Jesus, haven't you? You've walked away from the church. You've walked away and you're like, God can never ever use me. And you would be exactly wrong. Because if Jesus can use John Mark to write a gospel about Jesus called Mark, he can use you. He can totally use you. Now, let's look at the next one. And that's Luke. Luke presents Jesus as a man. Jesus as a man. In fact, Luke was a Greek, everybody say Greek. Thank you. Luke was a Greek who wrote to Greeks presenting Jesus Christ as the perfect man. The perfect man. All right? Now, Luke's occupation was he was a doctor. He was a physician. So because of that, he spends a lot of time looking at Jesus' humanity. I mean, the book of Luke spends more time talking about Jesus' emotions, Jesus' prayer life, uh, how Jesus uh, dealt with money and his teachings about money. Because, hey, you know, sometimes, you know, there you go. He, he spends more time on Jesus' genealogy, kind of like Matthew does. And not only does he talk about Jesus' genealogy and the whole ancestry thing, he traces Jesus' genealogy all the way back to Adam, who was the first what? Man. All right? So he's emphasizing Jesus' man, uh, humanity. Uh, the book of uh, Luke is the only book in the New Testament that tells us anything about Jesus' childhood. And he gives us a lot of information about Jesus' birth. In fact, it's in the book uh, of Luke uh, that we just we read about the shepherds and all of this stuff, right? Really, really interesting. Now, the key verse is found in Luke 19.10, and here's, here's what it says. In fact, this is interesting. One of the things that Luke calls Jesus a lot, his nickname is the Son of Man. Look at this. For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who... Who are lost. You see, just as Matthew wrote to Jews, kind of the in crowd, Luke wrote to everybody else. He wrote to all the Gentiles, presenting Jesus as a man. That's Luke's emphasis. Now, let me give you some unique characteristics of this book, all right? 
Luke emphasizes Jesus' humanity. I've already mentioned that. He talks about his emotions, the betrayal, the loneliness, the humiliation. He talks more about the crucifixion, a whole lot more than the crucifixion, than Mark does. Why is that? Because Mark is writing to Romans, and they crucify people all the time. They don't need details about crucifying, right? But Luke, because he's a doctor and a physician, it's almost like you can hear the heartbeat and the pain of Jesus through the crucifixion and the beatings. All right, let me give you some more. Luke is very detail-oriented. 50% of the information we read in the book of Luke is found in no other gospel, Matthew, Mark, or John. Very interesting. All right. Um, Luke has 18 parables, and those are stories that Jesus told, that no other gospel writer gives us. Very, very interesting. Now, let's, who is Luke? Luke was a doctor. He was a physician. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples. In the book of Acts, he's traveling a lot with Paul. And then what's interesting about Luke is that he is the only Gentile writer in the entire Bible. The rest of them were Jews. How many books are there in the Bible? 66, exactly right. And of those 66, two of those were written by Luke, a Gentile, and that is Luke and Acts. In fact, Luke and Acts, in the original, they were actually one book, and they had to split it up because it was too long, kind of like the last Harry Potter film. All right, now, <clears throat> let's look at the last one, and that is G- that's the, the gospel according to John. And John presents Jesus as God. Jesus is God. John was a Christian writing to the entire world, presenting Jesus as very God. All right? That is huge. Now, just as Matthew wrote to the Jews, and Mark wrote to the Romans, and Luke wrote to the Gentiles, John, he writes his gospel 40 years after everybody else wrote theirs. And he's not writing just to a group of people. He's writing them to everybody. Everybody say everybody. Everybody. And he's saying, you know what? Jesus is God. Now, this is interesting. The chapter one, he doesn't start with the genealogy. You want to know why? God doesn't have a genealogy. God's just always been. In fact, in John chapter one, verse one, it says, in the beginning. Now, where have you heard those words? Genesis 1, 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? In John chapter 1, verse 1, he says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. In fact, this is so interesting in chapter 1, he tells us that it was Jesus of the Trinity, of, of the second person of the Trinity, is the one who created everything, that all things were created by him and for him. So Jesus portrays, John portrays Jesus as very God. Very, very interesting. Let me give you a couple of details about the book of John. John doesn't tell us any parables. He doesn't give us any stories Jesus told. And he only presents seven miracles that Jesus did. Only seven. In fact, this is interesting. John also gives us the first seven days of Jesus' ministry. Just like how the, the person who wrote Genesis gave us the seven days of the earth and how it was created. A lot of parallels there. All right? 92% of the material found in the Gospel of John is found nowhere else in the Gospels. And let me say it this way. If we didn't have the Gospel of John, we would know 92% less of Jesus' life than any of the other Gospels. Isn't that interesting? The point of the book of John is this. This is John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and it says this. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written 
so that you may continue to what? John talks a lot about believe. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that means King, the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you will have life by the power of His name. In fact, another one of those verses we like quoting a lot, talking a lot about believe. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that if you would believe. John talks a lot about your belief. In fact, he's asking, he pretty much presents Jesus as God, and now he says, now the choice is up to you. And that's how I want to end today. The choice is up to you. Are you going to continue to see Jesus from your perspective? Are you going to continue to see Jesus kind of in your little pigeonhole that you placed him in as like a Mr. Rogers or a Captain Kangaroo? Because I promise you, if you keep Jesus as a Mr. Rogers or a Captain Kangaroo, then you're going to have a Mr. Rogers or Captain Kangaroo type of faith. Jesus, you have to let Jesus shatter the perceptions you have of him because it's our perspective and our perceptions keep us from seeing who Jesus really is. They have to change. So how will you see Jesus? How will your perceptive and your perspective be of Jesus? In fact, Jesus even asked that question. He he has some of his disciples around, and he asked this question to his disciples. And this is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. He says, what about you, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Let that question sit for a little bit. Who do you say Jesus is? Because I promise you, sometime, someday, you're going to need to have an answer to that question. Was he a good teacher? Was he a prophet? Was he somebody that maybe lived or maybe didn't? Or was he something a whole lot more? Was he the son of God? You see, what kept the Jews from accepting their king is because their perspective was wrong. And they would not change their perspective. So are you going to allow your perspective to keep you from experiencing who God wants to be in your life? Let me tell you, when Jesus asked that question, who do you say that I am? Some people said, hey, you're a good dude. You're a prophet. You're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist reincarnated. But Jesus asked, no, no, who do you say that I am? And listen to how Simon Peter answered that question. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Who do you say he is? Now, I'm not just saying who do you say he is just with your mouth, because that's easy. But what does your life say Jesus is? You see, so many of us, we, maybe you grew up in church, or you grew up in church and you left, and you came down front, and you grabbed a, a preacher by the hand, and you said, I believe in Jesus. Let me tell you what the Bible has to say about that type of belief, that even the demons believe and they shudder. It takes more than just saying words about Jesus. It it takes more than that. Because it's easy for us to say something and not have a life that backs it up. So let me ask that question again. What has your past seven days shown you how you really believe in Jesus? Let me tell you, if you're a follower of Christ, let me tell you what your past seven days look like. You spent some time praying to God. You spent some time reading God's word. 
you refused to see people through your eyes, but through Jesus' eyes, and you were willing to let people in front of you because you know what Jesus says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you believe Jesus Christ is your king and is your Lord and is your boss, then you spent some time praying for your children and praying for your wife, or if you don't have either, praying for that future spouse you might one day get. You see, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it has impacted the past seven days of your life. Let me tell you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me tell you what you didn't do. You didn't spend a lot of time worrying about your job because you know your real job is to tell other people about Jesus. You didn't spend a lot of time worrying about how your house looked because you know Jesus doesn't live in your house. He lives in your heart. You know, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you brought Jesus into some decisions when how you parent your children or how you treat your spouse. You can't say you love Jesus and leave your spouse. That doesn't work if you know Jesus. Now, some of you, you're like, okay, I I don't know him. Where, Where does that leave me? And that leaves you, who do you say that he is? So let me tell you how we're going to close today. I'm going to pray for two different types of people in here. The first group of people I'm going to pray for are those you know that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. You know that he has saved you, that he has forgiven you of your sins, and that you, at one time or another, you had that closeness. You need to know you can have that closeness again. He didn't leave you. Who left who? You left him. So I'm going to pray for you. And then after I get finished praying for you, I'm going to pray for those people who want to begin to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let's do that now. Everybody bow their heads. Nobody looking around. I'm not going to ask you to do anything weird, but I want you to talk to Jesus right now. Dear God, I pray for those people. Lord, to be honest with you, it's been me. It's easy to say that Jesus is the boss with our lips. And it's really hard to back it up with our lives. Lord, it's so easy and popular to blend in today and say Jesus is my Savior or Jesus is King or whatever. But so many times you call us to so much more than that. You call us to live a life of abandon and worthy of your calling. So Lord, I pray for those right now who over the past seven days, they've not lived up to who you've called them to be. They have acknowledged you with their lips, but their life is really far from you. And Lord, I pray right now, Lord, that you, Jesus, you would accept their forgiveness and forgive them of how they failed and how I failed. And Lord, that we, that you would accept our trying harder and better next week of allowing you more power and more authority in our life because you are the king who likes serving. You are the God-man. Lord, forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us for how we focus on the temporary instead of the eternal. Lord, cleanse us and make us right with you, Jesus Christ. Let these next seven days matter. Matter. Lord, it's in Jesus' name. Now, we're still praying. 
I'm going to pray for those people right now who really don't have an answer for that question. Who do you say that I am? Jesus asked that question. And some of you are here this morning and you don't have an answer. And you know, I want to say, you know what, that's okay to not have an answer right now. But you better nail that down soon. Because one day, you're going to be held accountable for the answer to that question. And for those of you who today, you want to say, I want to know Him. I, I want Jesus to be my Savior. Lord, I pray that you would listen to the prayers that we pray to you right now, Jesus Christ. Those who want to make this decision, let's pray it now. More than words, something that goes deeper to our hearts and that translates to our actions. Dear Jesus, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've screwed up and I know that my actions, my attitudes, my addictions have caused separation from me and you. But Lord, I also know about the gospel, the good news. And the good news is that you sent your son Jesus and he came. The bad news is that we're messed up. But the good news is that you take our mess ups and you put them on the cross and you give us your righteousness. So God, I pray, believing, trusting, putting our faith in you, Jesus Christ, a savior, a king, a servant, the God-man who wants to save us from our sins. Thank you for doing that right now. And thank you for allowing me to begin this relationship with you, Jesus Christ. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.